are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen. And we'll set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now, here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Erin Doherty Gregg. I'm your guest host today, standing in for Kate Ebner, who is working on a project in Costa Rica this week. Thank you for joining us this morning. My guest today is an ecologist and human rights observer who has been working in Haiti since 2004. Dr. Sasha Kramer received her PhD in ecology from Stanford University in 2006 and co-founded Sustainable Organic Integrated Livelihoods, or SOIL, that same year. SOIL's first project was an ecological sanitation project in Haiti in collaboration with Stanford's Engineers for a Sustainable World. Recently, the Huffington Post named Sasha as the greatest person of the day. Sasha, thank you for participating from Haiti this morning. I was fortunate enough to hear you speak last year at National Geographic's Emerging Explorers Symposium. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're, we're so glad to have you on the show today. Sasha, I've given an overview of your work with soil. I learned from your website that the majority of sanitation projects carried out in Haiti are implemented without forethought as to how the waste will be treated. Most toilets flush directly into rivers or the ocean, and latrines are either abandoned when full or emptied and treated into, into sites that, again, leach directly into rivers or the ocean. Soil is committed not only to providing safe sanitation, but also to safely treating human waste through the process of composting. Since building Haiti's first urban waste composting site near Capetian, Haiti, in 2009, soil has gone on to become the largest waste treatment operation in the country. Sasha, I'd like to invite you to give our listeners a fuller picture of your work and the impact it is having. Sure. Well, thanks so much for that introduction, Erin. Great. Um, as Erin mentioned, what what soil's mission is, is to take what most people would view as waste and find ways to transform those into resources. And the primary way that we do that is through ecological sanitation, where we construct composting toilets and then collect the waste and take it to a composting site where it's treated and transformed into soil that can then be used for agriculture and reforestation. And we started out in 2006 in Capetian, which is the second largest city in Haiti. And we started out incredibly small and sort of worked very slowly for several years, just building maybe one toilet every two or three months and really watching to see how it worked and to see how the community felt about it so we could then incorporate their feedback into future projects. And we sort of moved along at this pace for a couple of years. And then in 2009, we began partnering with Oxfam Great Britain in Capation. And they were actually the ones that financed this first composting site that Erin mentioned, which is just outside of the city of Capation. And at that point, we really, we started to scale up our activities because we felt like we had a better sense of what people liked and didn't like, and we've been able to modify our toilets accordingly. And we were planning to just continue working in northern Haiti um, when the earthquake happened in 2010. 
And I was in Capetian when the earthquake struck Port-au-Prince, and we basically lost all power, lost all communication. And we decided uh, two days later that we would send half of our team from Capetian down to Port-au-Prince to see how we could be of assistance. And our plan at the time was just to stay two or three days and then head back to, to Cap. And we got down here, and now here it is two years later, and I am still in Port-au-Prince. I, uh, oh, wow. We do still have an office in Cap Haitian. We continue our work there, but we have also set up an office in Port-au-Prince. Um, and since the earthquake, we've built about 200 toilets in camps where people displaced by the earthquake are living. Uh, and those toilets at their sort of peak of use were serving about 20,000 people. Um, we also set up a composting site in Port-au-Prince that eats the waste from those toilets. And I think at this point we have almost 500,000 gallons of, of compost that is ready for use. So we're really getting to an exciting point. But I do want to just clarify one thing that Aaron said in the introduction was that soil was the, the largest, um, that we have the largest waste treatment operation in the country. And while that was true in 2010, I'm happy to say that, that since the earthquake, the Haitian government has actually worked to put in a waste treatment site for Port-au-Prince. So prior to the earthquake, the country had absolutely no waste treatment whatsoever, other than our small composting site in Capitation. Um, but in, I believe it was about eight months ago, the Haitian government put in a, some waste stabilization ponds outside of the city of Port-au-Prince. And that's where the majority of waste that's coming from septic tanks or latrines is now being treated. So I think this is really wonderful news for Haiti. Um, and I know that the government is really looking at ways to make their waste treatment process more sustainable as well. And they're very interested in composting, and we're hoping to be able to partner with them in the coming year to add that component to their existing treatment site. Great. Well, thank you, Sasha, for that clarification. That is exciting that you have some partners now that you can work with on this project. Um, as someone who's studied conservation biology and ecology while I was an undergraduate at Middlebury College, I'm fascinated by your project. Um, you're taking human waste that cause major sanitation and health problems and then converting them into safe compost. Uh, the compo compost is then used to enhance the soil, something that's much needed in Haiti, where erosion and poor quality of the soil today is a big problem. This is one of the most resourceful programs imaginable. How did you come up with this? Well, it's been a it's been a long and iterative process. I mean, I actually I came to Haiti in 2004 when I was still completing graduate school. And I actually I came because I had read this book in 2000 in a course at Stanford called Eyes of the Heart, A Path for the Poor in the Age of Globalization. And this book was written by Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who at the time in 2000 was uh, president of Haiti. Mm -hmm. And Aristide has been a very controversial figure, but I think regardless of what your opinion may be about him, I, I highly recommend that anyone interested in global poverty or interested in Haiti read this book because it really certainly changed my life and made me say, okay, I'm, I'm going to move to Haiti as soon as I'm finished with 
graduate school and I want to work with the Aristide Foundation for Democracy and do sustainable agriculture work. Um, so I read that in 2000 and then I and then I got very sort of focused on my dissertation work at Stanford and sort of Haiti was a, a little bit on the back burner for me until late 2003 when there started to be a lot of political unrest here and then early 2004 Aristide was overthrown in a coup and when I was reading about this in the U.S. media, I had a sense that the sort of perception that I had had of the social movement in Haiti and what I was reading in the U.S. media were extremely different accounts. So I felt like I really wanted to go and see with my own eyes what was happening. Um, and I ended up linking up with a group of journalists from, from the San Francisco Bay Area and came with them in August of 2004 to monitor the first demonstration that was happening in opposition to the coup. And this demonstration was in Cap Haitian, so I flew in and flew to Cap Haitian and just absolutely fell in love with Northern Haiti, fell in love with the country in general. Um, and I ended up actually coming back to Haiti 12 times during my last two years of graduate school. and. During that time, I, I really, I, I had always sort of wondered what it meant to be a human rights observer and what sort of training what it takes for one to do that. And what I found when I came to Haiti was that really the only training that you need is an open heart and an open mind and a willingness to listen to people. And so I really spent those first two years not as an ecologist, um, not as a scientist, but as as a, a student, really, at Haiti, trying to learn from people's stories and support in any way that I could, sort of getting their voices out there. And so during this two years of, of coming to Haiti and doing human rights work, I it really became clear to me that the most prevalent human rights abuse in Haiti is actually poverty. And it's the fact that people don't have access to basic services that they need to live, like water, like sanitation. Um, and I also, as an ecologist, I, I, I couldn't help, couldn't take that hat off entirely. And I remember as I flew into Haiti for the first time, I sort of looked out at the, at the coastline and you could see that there's this sort of brown rim that extends all the way around Haiti. And I realized that what that was, was Haiti's once very fertile soil just eroding off into the ocean. And it's really very visually stunning as you're coming into the country. Um, after a couple of years here, I also realized that it wasn't, it wasn't just soil that was going into the ocean and creating that, that brown lip. It was also human waste. Um, and the way that I came to realize this was from spending time here and really needing a toilet and finding out that there was not one accessible to me. And I think that it's in that moment that I came to realize how much we who have grown up with adequate sanitation really take it for granted and how much a toilet really means not only for comfort and public health, but, but also just from a dignity perspective. I mean, nobody, Nobody wants to have to go to the bathroom in a public open area. And the truth of the matter is that for many people in Haiti, they don't have a choice. So during those two years, I started to think about all of these 
sort of separate but intertwined issues, environmental and social issues. And in 2005, I'm You'll, you'll cut me off if I'm sort of rambling on here. But sure, I, yeah, we have about another minute to the break, so um, keep oh, going. Well, and maybe we'll, we'll leave a cliffhanger maybe during yes. the break. So, uh, <laughs> when the music comes on, you, you listeners know you'll just have to wait a few minutes to, to get the end of the story. Great. <laughs> but, uh, but the way I found out about ecological sanitation was actually funny. I was living in, in Palo Alto uh, in California, and I had this compost pile in my backyard and I'd been studying nitrogen cycling. It was what really interested me academically. So thinking a lot about the flow of nitrogen molecules through the world. And I had this vision that I could maybe get a single nitrogen molecule to cycle through my body twice. And I thought the way to do this would be to pee on my compost and then grow food with this compost. And then hopefully some of that the elements from my urine would get into the food and actually cycle back through my body again. And, and that probably sounds pretty kooky and kind of disgusting <laughs> to uh, the people who are, are not thinking about things on a sort of chemical level. Um, but I, I'm not talking about actually consuming the human waste. I'm just talking about the, the actual molecules from it. So, so I've been thinking about this and, uh, I had a friend who wrote to me and said, I think I might have a solution to uh, what you've been trying to do. So she wrote to me about ecological sanitation. And uh, I ended up traveling to South Africa that year to go to a conference about it and uh, visit some projects there. And found that really here was a way to sort of address all of those environmental and social issues simultaneously. Uh, and that was how I got involved in ecological sanitation in Haiti Great. through a, a compost heap and some human rights work here. Great. Well, I'd like to take a break now, Sasha. And when we come back, I'd like to ask you about the science behind this so you can tell us all about how you are taking this human race waste and um, creating a rich, safe compost for um, the people of Haiti. We'll be right back. Okay. That's good. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Aaron Doherty Gregg, standing in as your host today on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life for Kate Ebner. I'm speaking with Dr. Sasha Kramer, a National Geographic Society explorer who is saving lives through an eco-sanitation project in Haiti that is, um, sorry about that. Sasha, before the break, we were talking about um, you converting human waste into compost and being able to use it to fertilize food and crops and using that and eating those same molecules that we had uh, excreted in waste. And a lot of people, as you said, that are not science nerds may say, yuck. Uh, can you tell us about the science behind the program? How do you convert human waste to rich compost that is safe and sanitary? Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I do think that certainly that would be my reaction. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I did not think about things at a more molecular level. But, but the truth of what happens during the composting process is that it basically mimics the creation of soil in natural systems. So any, any soil that you see anywhere is actually made from decomposing organic matter. So whether that be decomposing fruit or dead animals or poop or wood from a tree, it's all coming from what was once living things. So... Actually, the, the composting process is basically just speeding up that natural process of soil formation. And all of our food is really grown on, on, on organic things that were once alive and no longer are. So, so I think that that's sort of the way I think about it. And what happens when, when plants grow is that elements from the soil will make their way into the plant. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's really concerning about human waste is not those elements, but rather the, the living microorganisms that can make people sick. And so the way that the composting process works and ensures that people don't get sick from using this, this final compost product is that compost pile gets really hot, or at least the kind of composting that we're doing, which is called thermophilic composting. Okay. And the way that this works is basically we have a, uh, we have a bin that we pour all of the wastes into, and we mix them with a good carbon source. So that can be, it can be, it could be anything from dried grass or sawdust. And actually what we use mostly in Haiti is something called sugarcane the gas, which is kind of a funny name, but... <laughs> The gas is a, uh, is a byproduct of rum production. So it's something that we actually have fairly good quantities of here in Haiti and we're able to get for free right now because mostly there's nothing's done with it and it's burned. Okay. So we pick that up and we mix it with the human waste and in this compost bin. And basically what that does is it creates this ideal environment for the good kind of microbes, the kind that will will eat up and outcompete those pathogens that make people sick. 
So what happens is we get it all in there, we create this perfect environment and these good soil microbes that help to break down organic matter, they get really excited because it's such a perfect place for them and they have tons of food and, and they basically start to reproduce like crazy. And if you can imagine, you know, if you have a small room and you have one person in there, well, you know, it feels about room temperature. But if you put 100 people in that small room and they were all moving around and dancing, then that room would really heat up very quickly. And that's basically what's happening inside this compost pile is you have millions of microorganisms that are reproducing and they're shaking around and it starts to heat up that pile from the inside. And it's actually that heat that's generated by microorganisms that will ironically kill the bad pathogens that are in there. So according to the World Health Organization, in order to safely treat human waste, you need to bring them to a temperature of over 122 degrees Fahrenheit for at least one week. Um, and what we do in our compost is we actually we take the temperatures every two days and monitor throughout the pile how hot it's getting. And what we've seen is that within five to six hours after dumping waste, our piles actually skyrocket up in temperature. And within a day, they get up to 150 or 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So well above that required threshold. And then usually those piles will stay at that high temperature for a minimum of one and a half to two months. So what we're looking at is conditions that no human pathogens can possibly survive. Um, and that's how we ensure that our final product is really is safe for use. And I know that there's been a lot of sort of discussion in the U.S. around the application of biosolids from mm -hmm. waste treatment plants. And I do want to state that this is a a bit of a different process in that we're using this thermophilic, this heat to, to kill pathogens. Um, and another concern that comes up a lot about biosolids in the US are heavy metals. So people are very worried about lead contamination and other heavy metals. And I wanna point out that there's a difference between biosludge and compost in that respect also, which is that most of those heavy metals that you find in biosludge in the US are actually coming from industrial chemicals that are used in people's sinks, that are used in, in, um, in factories, and all of that, with our sewer system in the US, all of that waste goes into the same waste treatment plant. Okay. Um, so you get a lot of those heavy metals from chemicals that are not actually coming out of people's bodies. Whereas in Haiti, when we're working with just human waste and there are no industrial chemicals that are going into the compost, we really don't have that concern about heavy metals. So, so basically, we treat the human pathogens with heat and, and then we don't worry very much about the heavy metals because in general, those are not coming from human waste. They're coming from other chemicals. So you're saying so, so here, uh, just to clarify, so the... Um, heavy metals, you don't have to worry about the same things because people are using these toilets. They are only toilets. You don't have people um, using like medication or something that they're or dumping down the drains or cleaning solutions that they're dumping down their drains. It's simply just a toilet. So you know exactly what's pretty much what's going into it. 
Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I and I don't want to say that we never get anything strange in mm-hmm. the toilets. I mean, we just <laughs> we do get garbage in there. Surprised at the things that you might find in a toilet bucket. But for the most part, all of that can be just thrown into the compost pile and that that which doesn't compost gets sifted out at the end. Um, and it heats up also whatever trash is in there. Okay. So still any pathogens that are on that would be killed. Great. So what do you do once you have this composted um, material that's been sitting there for one and a half to two months? Well, we... Uh, after one and a half or two months, it's sort of it's at that point it's pathogen free and it's safe to handle, but it's not fully decomposed yet. So, if you were to look at a two-month-old pile, you'd still see pretty big chunks of the sugarcane bagasse, and you actually you won't see any poop in it anymore. That that disappears pretty quickly. Okay. Um, but the sugarcane does take a little more time to actually fully decompose. So, usually after a couple of months, we move the pile out of the bin. Um, we turn it and we just move it into a pile on the ground. So basically what's called a, a windrow in composting. Um, and then we just let it sit for another four months. And usually between six and eight months, it, it starts to look like really nice soil. Um, and for people who, who know that gardeners out there who know that smell of, of rich earth, you can really, you can tell when it's ready. Your nose can tell you, your eyes can tell you. It's just something that you sense. So around six to eight months, we usually sift it. And that's when we, uh, we work on getting it out there to people who need it. So farmers or organizations that are working on reforestation or agriculture projects, um, and we're really sort of in the early phases of marketing our compost. I would say we we really started to sell it about about three months ago. Okay. And since okay. then, we've sold about two and a half tons, which is a, a fair amount of compost and really exciting. Um, but I think that we're just in the process of ramping that up. So right now, what we do mostly is I walk all around uh, wherever I go in Haiti with a a little bag of uh, of compost, and I I whip it out at any occasion that I can and show it to people. and And I think that in terms of the kind of sanitation that we do, really the the most convincing aspect of it is when you can show people that final product, and they can look at it, and they can smell it, and they're able to say, "Well, this is this is definitely not poop anymore. This has really been transformed into a completely different thing." So I think it's one of our our most powerful tools for both the social marketing of the sanitation and in terms of the education around the process of ecosan, which is ecological sanitation. So I, I will try not to use uh, abbreviations <laughs> without pointing out what they are. I hate when people do that. Oh, great. <laughs> well, actually, why don't we um, go to a break? That was great to hear you uh, talk about that. We'll go to a quick break and we come back. I want to know more about you and um, your background before you went to Stanford and how you started on this path and more about your own leadership and your vision for your work in Haiti. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? 
Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Erin Doherty Gregg, standing in for Kate Ebner today. My guest is National Geographic Society Explorer, Dr. Sasha Kramer, who has joined us from Haiti, where she is turning human waste into rich compost through the organization that she co-founded, Soil. Dr. Kramer has recently been named the greatest person of the day by Huffington Post, and listening to her today, I can certainly understand why. Sasha, I'd like to um, ask you a question. Our show is about visionary leadership. Uh, your project is really making a difference. It seems to me that you've been able to see solutions where other people have not. What's your vision for Haiti and your vision for your own work there in Haiti? Well, I, I, I thank you for that introduction, Erin. That, that yes. was very kind. And, uh, <laughs> I think that, I mean, I think that seeing solutions where others have not has really been a very collaborative effort. And I've had, I've been blessed with an incredible team of people here that I work with. And I think that it, it's through the people who work with soil, but also the communities in which we've worked, that we've really been able to come up with a solution that that works for people in Haiti, that they're, that they're comfortable with, and that hopefully communities really feel like they've been a part of developing. So I think that the vision has been, as I said at the beginning, very, very sort of slow and And the initial idea was based on a lot of science and a lot of projects from around the world. Um, and I don't want to seem at all like soil was the, the first to do eco-sand. It actually... The, the process of transforming human waste into fertilizer has been happening for thousands of years. And sort of the earliest cases that we know of of this are in China. Um, up to 5,000 years ago, people were using what they called night soil to fertilize fields. And I think that the idea of ecological sanitation developed both from that practice and also from people who are really observing natural systems. And so while the idea is just sort of taking off globally at this point, I think that 
it's it's something based on processes that have been going on in nature forever. So so we really we know it to nature, this one. <laughs> and basically just took the, what we saw happening in the natural world and tried to make it appropriate for the context in which we're working. And, you know, I've sort of, I've had a lot of people ask over the years, does the soil want to expand into other countries or, or what is your vision for how this organization will grow in the future? And when I first got into this work, I think that our feeling was, well, we're going to build more and more toilets everywhere, and we'll build thousands and thousands of toilets, and thereby make a real difference in sanitation and heat. And as I've spent more time doing this work, it's really it's become very clear to me that any country in the world where there is very good sanitation, it's never because an international nonprofit came in and built thousands of toilets. Um, it's always about local people being involved in that process. And it's generally because both the private sector and the government have gotten involved and allowed good ideas to be scaled up. So we're now shifting our model in Haiti. And I would say over the last couple of years, we've really started to think more along the lines of, what can we as a small organization do to just basically provide a model, provide a demonstration of something they can work? And then how can we help them scale up by just basically trying to pass this off to, to other local organizations, the private sector in Haiti? How can we get the Haitian government involved? And how can we support that process through education and consultancy work, mm-hmm. but not by being ones that build all of the toilets? Because um, I think if that were our plan, it would it would take us hundreds of years to get to where we want to be. And the country does not have hundreds of years to wait for good sanitation, especially given the, the cholera outbreak that many people heard of last year and still an ongoing problem. And uh, major cause of death in Haiti. So there's really a need for quick action. And what we're looking to do both with Haiti and internationally is just to to do tests on a very small scale ideas for how sanitation can not only provide the important public health service of, of toilet facilities, but also perhaps provide livelihood opportunities. So we're looking now, we've been doing these public toilets for years, and we're now really looking at developing a household toilet model that people can rent for a very small monthly fee. And that monthly fee would cover the collection and treatment of the waste. But not only that, that monthly fee would also provide a source of income for small-scale entrepreneurs that might like to get involved in the in the waste business, which is a, a great business. I, I really, if you know that you have a constant need for it and you also have a constant supply of your raw materials. So it's a pretty big business to get involved in, uh, risk-wise. And we're really looking to test out this business model on a very small scale and then hopefully be able to share them not only with people in Haiti, but with groups that are working in other countries. Um, however, to get back to, to where I started, I don't, I don't think that soil has 
I, I really, we were, we were started in Haiti. We started it because of Haiti. Our organization is very much about providing sanitation in Haiti. And while we'd like to be a model for other countries, we hope to be able to partner with local groups in those countries to do that work. Not expand our own operations outside of Haiti, because I can say that after having been here for six years, I still feel like I'm just getting to know this country. And I'm working very hard at it, and I, I will probably be working very hard at it my whole life. And I, I think to do really effective work, it's important to have a connection to the place in which you're working. So... Great. Well, I think that's a great vision that you have for, um, you know, being a model for other other people in other countries if they wanted to start programs such as yours or uh, to offer this service. And also your vision of really setting it up to actually empower the people to do the work themselves. So consult and show them how to do it, uh, like teach a man to fish and let them know how to do this and then they can have their own like right now currently i believe most of the toilets or all of the toilets are uh, communal toilets and then this household project that you talked about about having people rent toilets it's a great way for the local people to take um, charge and um, have some ownership of their own sanitation uh, needs so thank you for sharing that yeah I actually, I wanted to add to that. We had a very exciting day yesterday because it was actually like the very first time we just started doing these household toilets. Okay. And we're actually partnering with Concern Worldwide who built a lot of in-home ecological toilets. And we've been working with them on the education component and sort of trying to turn it from a humanitarian aid project into a, a sustainable long-term project. So we've been working with their toilet models. Like yesterday was the first time um, that we've actually had families pay this, this monthly service fee. So households paid the equivalent of about a dollar twenty U.S. Uh, and that's for this entire month. And but really, it feels it may sound like not very much, um, especially to listeners in the U.S. where we're used to paying for our services. And this is something that I often bring up in Haiti because I think particularly since the earthquake, but in general, Haiti has had very much a culture of international aid organizations coming in and giving things for free. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to transition from that into more of a model where you could envision international aid organizations not being necessary someday, which I think is, is really the ultimate goal. So, so this idea of people paying, and I think yesterday we had we have 21 households with toilets, and 18 of those households paid their their 50 good monthly fee. And we had a big celebration last night because I feel like this is really a breakthrough, and it's what we need to make this transition from us as a nonprofit being responsible for this to passing it off to Haitians. So it's been a very exciting. Port-au-Prince for us. Great, congratulations. Um, I had a, wanted to ask you some questions about the people of Haiti. Uh, they've been through so much. Haiti's a nation whose population is almost entirely descended from African slaves. 
In 1804, Haiti won independence from French colonial rule, however, was blockaded from trade and not recognized by the U.S. until 1867 for fear its recognition would inspire rebellion in many U.S. slaves. Uh, throughout its history, there has been political and military corruption, poverty, um, drug trafficking. The devastating earthquake in 2010 left so many people homeless and without basic human needs, even more than there were before in one of the poorest nations in the world. Yet despite all of this hardship, people often talk about the spirit of the people of Haiti. Um, as I was preparing for this interview, I was watching people talk um, online, some videos on YouTube of people living in Haiti, and they're just like, very inspiring people. Can you tell us about your experience working in Haiti and working with the local people? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm really glad that you asked this question, Erin, because I, I feel like it's uh, it's something that I don't often get asked when I'm when I'm talking about our work, and I feel like it's really important to be able to talk about the history of Haiti and how that how that's really affected the situation that we see today. So I feel like almost always when I read about an article about Haiti or or a book, or a story, one of the first things you hear is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And what I like to say is that Haiti is not so much the poorest country as it is the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere. And the reason I say that is because there have been so many international forces that have really played into the poverty that we see in Haiti today. And I think that Often when people hear about Haiti, you, you might go away thinking, what is it about Haitian people that, 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 that they can't protect their environment? Why is it that they can't come up with innovative ways to get themselves out of poverty? And I think there's a lot of blame that's sort of laid on the people of Haiti that is perhaps unfairly placed there. And one of the things that I often mention, and you actually touched on it in the intro there, is... When Haiti won their independence in 1804, it really did its shockwaves around the world to slaveholding nations. And there was this fear that Haiti was going to be an example and was going to sort of start the domino effect of slavery being abolished around the world, which arguably it did. So those fears were well-founded. Um, but in response to those fears, the French actually returned to Haiti in 1825 and demanded that the Haitian government at the time pay France reparations for their loss of property, which meant the island itself and the people who were living there. And Haiti was, was sort of strong-armed into paying the equivalent of about $27.1 billion, if you account for inflation. Wow. And the, the French basically said, if you do not pay this money, you will never be recognized by the international community. So Haiti had very little choice in the matter. And it actually it took over 100 years for Haiti to pay that debt to France. And during that time, the few public schools that existed in the country were closed. Over 50% of the forests in Haiti were cut down. And that wood was sent to build Paris instead of Port-au-Prince. And during that time when this, this new nation should have been putting in place infrastructure that would allow people to, to live with the basic services that they need, 
All of that money that could have gone into infrastructure went to servicing this debt to France. And not only that, Haiti actually had to take out other loans in order to pay this debt. And they continue to service those loans today. So really, since its inception as an independent nation, Haiti has never been free of debt. And arguably, one of the primary reasons that Haitians don't have their basic human rights met today is because money is going into servicing debts instead of instead of paying for what people need to live. So I'm really glad that you gave me the opportunity to talk about that. And I know we might be coming up on a break here. And I do want to say more about the spirit of the Haitian people. Okay. Um, well, we why don't do we, yeah, let's take a break and when we come back. Um, I'd love for you to share that with us about working there and uh, their, the spirit of the Haitian people. That's a great topic. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace. Work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm Erin Doherty Gregg, and you are listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Kate Ebner is delivering a leadership program in Costa Rica this week, and I'm taking her place for a conversation with Dr. Sasha Kramer of Soil, a remarkable eco-sanitation project in Haiti. Before the break, we were talking with Sasha about the spirit of Haiti. Haiti is a nation whose population um, has been through so much hardship, um, and a lot of times people overlook the fact. I love the fact uh, Sasha said people often say Haiti is the poorest nation in the um, Western Hemisphere, and Sasha prefers to say they're the most impoverished nation. So, Sasha, could you tell us more about the spirit of the people in Haiti and what it's like to work there? Sure, I would love to. Um, 
I think that it was really it was really the people of Haiti that made me fall so deeply in love with this country in 2004. And I came, as I mentioned, just after the government had been overthrown, and it was a very it was a time of a great unrest in Haiti and a time when people who had struggled all their lives suddenly found that, that their situation was even more difficult. And I think that what really struck me immediately was the fact that people living with so little, people who were living with so much in the way of struggle, were, were able to receive me so warmly and were able to really treat another with such such genuine respect and kindness. And, you know, it made me think about in the United States where we're used to having our basic needs met. And sometimes when you have everything you need, you sort of look for something. You can look for something that's not working out because you got to have something in your life. Mm -hmm. And we, we find ourselves sort of caught up in these, these, what I have come to see, and I won't say that I don't battle them myself still, I do, but I, I think that the Haitian people have given me a real perspective on some of the things that I used to really view as struggles in my life um, and made me see that, that, that really these things are, are very easy to overcome when you, when you look at it from a different perspective, when you look at it from the perspective of people who don't have to eat and yet still can welcome a neighbor into their home and share what little they have. Um, and that was what really struck me in Haiti. I found that people everywhere were willing to share the little that they did have with me. And I love that, you know, right now I live, I live around the corner from our office. So I get up every morning and I walk into work and everyone says hello and people in Haiti, people, there's a, it's a big kissing culture. So you kiss people on the cheek when you see them. And every morning when I come into work, I have about, we have about 20 people that work in our office. And I come in and I get a nice kiss from everyone. Good morning. <laughs> I think, you know, this is something that, that, that would not happen in the U.S. This sort of culture of, of kindness and enthusiasm about seeing one another. And it's something that, I think it's really moved me and and really works for me. It, 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 it gives me the inspiration that I need to continue working with poop all day and toilets. And when you get to come into the office and see those smiles every morning. So I've been I've been very impressed and humbled by the spirit of Asian people. Great. Actually, um, what a great way to start the day like that, you know. Um, and also, you just mentioned this inspires you to see that what else inspires you Sasha and who inspires you to do the work that you do or um in the life that you want to lead what do you find inspirational well I I've had so many people I I really feel like all of the ideas and the work that I've done has been born of the the work and sweat of others but uh but my primary inspiration for my work in Haiti has, has been the community that we work with. And it's not any one person in particular. It is that 
It is that, that group of people, that really communal feeling here and that feedback from communities that that keep us moving forward. So I couldn't put, put a, a name on it and I wouldn't want to try with such a long list, but I, I did about my mother and the inspiration that she's been for me. And I'm not going to cry, but it makes me want to cry when I talk about my mother because she, uh, she has really, both of my parents, but my mother in particular, has really encouraged me to live my dream, even, even if it means that I'm not on the same continent anymore, even if it means that she only sees me once a year. And she is really the reason that I have felt empowered to do the work that I do. And she also, she, she's very involved in our work. She's sort of, all of our donations get sent home to her and one that deposits them in the account. And she's really found ways to stay connected with me and my work. Um, but I think if I had to name one person, I would, I would name her as the greatest inspiration. And I encourage parents out there to, to really take, to be empowered by the difference that you can make in your children's lives just by teaching them that they can be what they want to be and allowing them the freedom to do that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think um, it's something we found in a lot of our visionary leaders. A lot of people have inspiration from, you know, people that are big and grand and out in the world that, you know, presidents of countries or, but I feel like all of them have also had somebody that has been very close and personal to them that um, has been a parent, a sibling. So it's just really nice to, to hear that from you and then know that you don't need to look sometimes too far away from where you are to find somebody who can really inspire you in the right direction. Um, Sasha, I'd like to ask you quickly before we close, if you could share a little bit about how people can support you and your work and how they can donate to soil. Sure. Well, I think that soil started out and, and for years was run only on the donations of individuals. And it's thanks to this community of supporters that we really were able to get started and do the work that we do. And now we are in a position where we have to work very hard at it, but we can sometimes find grants from larger funders. But I think that the most important thing for us in terms of just that inspiration that we're talking about, that sort of motivation to continue doing our work are, is the support of individual donors. And it's something that I, I really want to encourage people if you've been moved by moved by this uh, discussion, if you've been moved by the plight of the Haitian people, to just take a moment and go to our website, which is www.oursoil.org, and you can make a donation, small, large, it all means so much to us, um, and it lets us know that the people are out there and they're listening and they care, so I'd really, I would ask that that people show your support. And if you can't make a donation, then send us a note. We, we really appreciate those as well. Great. So, well, Sasha, yes. thank you so much today. I have so many more questions for you, but we are out of time. I hope that um, you enjoyed being on our program. Um, I'd like to encourage all our listeners to go to www.oursoil.org and make a donation to uh, Soil, Sasha, and her work and the people of Haiti. 
And next week, Kate Ebner will be back to host a conversation with Dr. Hyatt Cindy, another National Geographic Society explorer, as our April Explorer Month continues. So everyone, have a great week. And Sasha, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, okay. everyone. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.